The in-dash OLED display in the Cadillac Escalade has 38 total diagonal inches of color display. So why do we give it a curve too? I guess you could say we like to bend the rules. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving. The poor children of New York. The children of the Bronx and Flatbush and Chinatown are trusted with the task of creating the hip and unique New York City culture that many transplants live for. Yet those same children are underestimated and expected to perform on par with the rest of the city in unsafe and unbalanced environments. When schools closed in March, there was an overwhelming disturbance to the lives of children and communities that simply did not have the Wi-Fi, the bandwidth, the computers, or the supervision to adapt to any type of virtual learning curriculum. On top of that, a racial uprising put a weight on Black youth that is impossible to describe. So many young Black and brown people of New York City are experiencing anxiety and depression from witnessing their caregivers die of COVID-19. In addition to every adult around them feeling extraordinarily frustrated from unexpected unemployment, it just, it looks and it feels like the children of New York City's poorest neighborhoods are constantly coming last in line. It is by God's only intervention that the youth of New York have these four guests to lean on in this time of complete chaos that will change their lives forever. In this episode, you'll hear voices from four professionals who have not taken a day off since the pandemic started in order to care for the city's vulnerable, mistreated, and all but forgotten children. This is Brandon Janice, and you're listening to Sick Empire. Sick Empire, the children of the pandemic. First, you'll hear from Gina Jefferson, a Brooklyn woman who runs an organization called Just As I Am, or JIA for short, where she and her staff go into schools in underserved communities and cultivate young leaders by helping them express their spiritual greatness with their peers through student-led empowerment workshops. Miss Gina is the real damn deal. After working in the New York City Department of Education and feeling like she was not truly helping any children, she left the cushy salary and benefits and started Jaya out of her basement. Listen to our conversation about how she continues to serve children during the pandemic, navigating around the fear that some people have of black and brown children, and what we can all do to show up for the city's young people. Can you just briefly give me a little background on Just As I Am? Just As I Am is a personal and spiritual development leadership program for teens and young adults. We offer workshops throughout New York City and New Jersey. We go out to different um, schools and agencies. We do youth conferences and uh, we put on uh, personal development workshops, empowering workshops um, that are youth-led. We're homegrown, Brooklyn homegrown. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
started in my basement. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm Brooklynite. Um, started I started my career in the New York City Department of Education. So okay. I was a teacher first, then a school social worker. And With COVID, how has the the job changed? How has like caring for and, and working for the the children changed? We went from being a very service community oriented you know, um, organization that's putting a lot out. When COVID hit, you know, I guess what happened is we had to kind of halt, put a halt on um, our outward facing and really turn back within because, you know, we're developing young leaders, we're, we're teaching them, know yourself before you serve others. And so we had to turn back within because all of us fell out. And it took a minute to regroup, to um, support each other, to have these open discussions about what's going on, and to allow our youth leadership to talk about their fears, to talk about their anxiety, to talk about the depression that was starting to, to, to come up, you know, and because um, now they're wondering, what the hell? is going on and what's happened, what's going to happen to my future. It's really important to, um, to really stop everything and check in with these young folks, you know, and give them an opportunity to express themselves because some of their parents were either, you know, fired, not going to work or going to work or, and there was just really no time to talk. And so I think that was our first, priority, um, creating a a safe platform for them to process. What is the biggest difference that you've noticed in that process with the children? There's a a loss of a feeling of trust in the world. They're watching their parents um, freak out. They're watching their parents react to what's going on. Um, You know, now all of a sudden they're hearing that people are dying. And they are scared. There's a sense of um, confusion and fear. There's something to be said about that, right? There's something yeah. to be said about how this generation is going to kind of have to carry the the waste, if you will, mm-hmm. of the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. You know what, though? You know, <laughs> it's really up to us and those who can to really show up and make sure that they don't, they're not part of the fallout. You know what I mean? Like we have to be focused with supporting them and creating spaces for them to, um, to heal from this. Do you feel somewhere along the lines that the city has like failed the, the children of, of lower income neighborhoods, the children that go to public school? You know, it's clear that there's a hierarchy of needs, you know, that we all as humans have, right? So there's a need for food and there's a need for shelter. And I think this, the city definitely focused on the food part, making food available, you know, for our youth. And I think that they tried <laughs> to continue to educate our youth. I've heard a lot of bad stories, but also, you know, I heard some some decent ones. But that was also very, very stressful for our, our young people um, because the adults were panicked 
and 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 probably pushed into this virtual um, educational system. You know, I just think our city in general um, doesn't really, really um, focus on the well-being of youth in the way that in in the in the wholesome well-being of youth, I would say. Especially since we kind of, I mean, got this wake-up call uh, mm-hmm. with COVID-19 and the pandemic and the lockdown and all the systems are broken. And how do you do virtual learning if mm-hmm. 70% of the kids don't have computers Thank at home, you, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, so, like, with that, like, I mean, these that is the evidence, right? So, with that, do you see... In the future, do you see it getting better? I do. You know, I do. And, you know, for one thing, you know, this whole between COVID and, you know, um, Black Lives Matter and all these things that are happening, there's like a whole uprising of cultural awareness. It just is. And I think that we are learning to pay attention and thinking about what's most important. And so, you know, I think... You know, the bottom line is that um, we we have to wake up. <laughs> and um, I do think that, you know, young people are are saying, hello, don't like trash our world. Like, come on, like give us give us some some room to grow. <laughs> you know, so I think we're, we're being forced to um, to shift and to get better. And there's a lot of good things happening. I think that's another good outgrowth of this pandemic is that people are starting to say, you know what, I can I can do, you know, this thing that I've been putting on the shelf for so long. I can just do that right now and, and offer it to my community. And I think people are starting to like be more courageous and more open to sharing their gifts and their passion and their ideas. Um, so that's making more room for uh, for healing and for growth. Can I ask you a very real question? Mm-hmm. There are, because I like, I mean, you're right. There there are a lot of people. There are a lot of brown and black people in Brooklyn and in the Bronx mm-hmm. um, who have a lot of privilege. Yes. And I mean, I have to ask you, like, do you ever come across Black or brown people who do have the privilege and who live in the neighborhood, but maybe are, for a lack of better words, maybe are afraid of the youth. Oh, yeah. (laughs) How do you navigate that? This whole, uh, like I said, this whole uprising of, of awareness and cultural awareness is an opportunity for us to, to look at ourselves. Cause we're all like, you know, a lot of us are pointing at the white community to say, okay, wake up, look at what's been going on, but we need to all look at ourselves, you know, and say, which, in what ways do I judge young people? Do I, um, you know, not do as much as I could do, you know, in the community because people, we are all responding to fear. That's just the bottom line. That's what racism is about. And we all have our share of fear that we allow to stop us. We allow it to keep us stuck. There are people with resources who who are who who see youth and 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 think that, oh, I can't 
connect with them or they, you know, they're not safe. And if someone's not looking at themselves, <laughs> then I think that um, you're missing the message. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing that I think you can speak to brilliantly is this. So there's this whole movement about defunding the police, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And not just having a lawless society, but replacing armed uh, individuals with a bias, uh, with people who have trained to be social workers, people who have went to school to be psychiatrists, and people who work with daily work with people with mental health problems, people who are trained to do things like this. Mm -hmm. Like as a social worker, someone who does brilliant social work, do you see that as a a realistic approach? I see it as an and. (laughs) I, I see it as one thing that we can do. I think that's one conversation and I think it's a big conversation and I think that, you know, there's a lot to consider around it. Um, and, and there are other conversations that need to be happening simultaneously. I think that's one conversation and I think it's a big conversation and I think that, you know, there's a lot to consider around it. Um, and, and there are other conversations that need to be happening simultaneously. In Black and brown communities, like, I feel like we are moving forward and moving mm-hmm. ahead um, with conversations about counseling and therapy and empowerment and self-empowerment. Mm-hmm. However, I, I think that we still have a very long way to go, mm-hmm. right, as far as, like, the healing process is concerned. What can, can you talk to me about, like, kind of how to navigate that space, for example, if a, a youth is in a position where maybe if they express like, oh, I'm depressed or I have anxiety or using any type of clinical mm-hmm. term like that, it would be shut right, in their right. household, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. How do you navigate like getting youth who have that type of you know, insecurity about expressing themselves Mm -hmm. in that way. How do you navigate, like, bringing them in and and Mm -hmm. helping them tap into that that space inside themselves? You know, I'm not going to lie. Bringing them in is challenging because of, you know, all the the negativity that there is around um, and shame that there is around um, mental health. We go into the schools and we talk about stuff. Last time we went into a Brooklyn high school, Edward R. Murrow High School, uh, we have a workshop called Healthy Mind, Healthy Vibes. And we were in there talking about anxiety and depression. And some of those young people were like, yes, please, let's talk about this. And then other young people were like, just stumped. You know, they're like, is this okay to talk about? You know, they were so guarded. Um, but it's about going, you know, continuing to be visible and saying it's okay not to be okay. (laughs) 
you know, especially during this pandemic. And, and as we move, as they go back to school, there are so many young people who are going to need to process this loss and allow them to say, oh, okay, so what I'm feeling makes sense. You know, um, other people are feeling it too. And I think that's what a young person needs to hear, um, that they're not alone and that their feelings matter. Next, I wanted to speak to someone who deals directly with the feelings of children in New York City. I called Kevin DeHill Fuchel, who is the executive director of an organization called Counseling in Schools. He and his staff power through the closing of schools and through the protests by making themselves available to continue counseling children through this extraordinarily difficult time. Kevin speaks low and calm and collected. However, he is raw and real about how draining it's been to continue such important mental health work during a pandemic. He is honest about his concerns for the students in low-income neighborhoods if their emotional well-being is not treated as equally as important as their academic success. And he shares some powerful experiences he's had counseling children of New York City through 9-11, Superstorm Sandy, and the earthquakes in Haiti. Can you talk to me about distance counseling? Have you done that before? Uh, no, um, not in this capacity. We we sort of call it telecounseling, but yeah, on the scale that we're doing it um, and that it's seen as normal or acceptable has propelled us into that realm. The challenges certainly existed um, to just make contact in the very beginning, but the technological issues and the, you know, the lack of infrastructure in certain communities certainly was playing a part um, in creating challenges. Can you talk about the emotional and social impacts the pandemic has had on not only the, the children that you have relationships with, but on yourself and your staff? I mean, I can assume that counseling children who come from underserved neighborhoods is difficult on a regular day. So adding a pandemic and adding a revolution to the mix, I can only assume is... Um, taxing? Um, there's no question that we're tired. Um, when uh, people started rising up against the racist structures um, for our Black staff and staff of color, uh, I think the levels of exhaustion hit new levels, new levels of intensity uh, and challenge. And we really tried to offer the support and opportunities for release um, and expression that people need throughout that. You know, along that line, we did have staff who had immediate family members who, who were dying um, at the very beginning of the disease and um, a large number of children who had uh, very close caregivers to them uh, who had died. and. Uh, arrangements for childcare that were shifting um, and children who were being shifted to other homes because the person who would care for them had had either been in the hospital or had died or had needed to be quarantined is a big focus for my organization for counseling in schools and for the work we do in schools and, and in any community. Healing is a critical concept 
um, and to heal, you know, you need to be able to be present authentically. Your narrative needs to be your narrative and, and respected and, and identified um, in those places where you can um, call that out um, need to be established. That's something that we're committed to and we see as relevant um, when schools return. So in that sense, with the pandemic putting New York City in a financial fallout, do you have any fears that funding will be lost and you won't be able to continue this work? So far, um, the city has been strong in their commitment to the work that we do in this immediate time. Um, my concern is what's going to happen, you know, six months from now, eight months from now. Um, I think there is, you know, the city has listened to the mental health community uh, over the years to appreciate what a crisis is and what crisis response needs to be. What my concern is, is that the city and schools and school communities in particular get organized to keep emotional well-being um, on the forefront and on an even par with academic skill building. Um, it is very critical, having said that, that the state does get some further federal aid because there are significant state-funded programs which the governor is not committing to at this point. Um, and I think those that will filter into weaken the educational infrastructure from how state dollars support city dollars. Um, and that will be a little bit more nuanced as opposed to just lopping off, you know, some, some quadrant of services. Um, but it will be corrosive um, and it will be uh, disproportionately detrimental uh, to, to poor communities. I asked Kevin, with so many people who are out of work, how can we show up for the children of New York City's public schools during this time? Here's what he had to say. When schools do start to reopen, if folks are out of work, um, I do think making oneself available to your local school um, is a great idea. The reopening of schools uh, is an opportunity for some restructuring. Kind of show up, you know, whether it be virtually, if that's what it has to be, or literally at the doorstep. Um, and I'm here and I want to be a part of this community and I want to understand the curriculum and I want to make sure that what's happening in this building is reflective of our community's needs. For those of us who are fortunate to work at home, who may be privileged and not connected, I think that it is an opportunity politically to stay very attuned to the, to the elements and the factors that impact children's lives. What are some of the barriers that you've kind of watched during your career at counseling in schools? What are some of the barriers that you've kind of watched crumble down in terms of the students and their kind of response to the counseling? Interesting question. I think that the barriers that We've experienced organizationally have not, have not as have not as obviously come from the children as they have from the personnel in the schools where we work. Consistency is critical, um, and and that builds trust. and And I would also say um, something I've experienced and something we say to our counselors all the time: um, 
you know, a, a young person will know if you're there um, really to support them or not, you know, within seconds. Um, children will know. Um, they know your heart when you show up. Is there a, a, a post, are there any resources or tools that you know about, uh, maybe like a post-COVID approach to the work that you do with children? When we talk about COVID and trauma um, impact, um, I do think it's really important to look at frameworks for healing. There are tools and techniques to create healing-centered engagements. In fact, there's an organization called the Bronx Legal Services that just yesterday released a document called the Roadmap to Healing-Centered Schools. It really gives a strong outline for how schools can move to create these um, really critical engagements for students. I'm wondering if in your work you've ever experienced anything. I mean, I don't think anyone's experienced anything like the pandemic, but just in terms of something just earth shattering, something just that really shook up the world of of children who you counsel. Has anything even come close to what is happening right now? There are there are a few experiences um, that are reference points for me, but I would agree that the multiplicity of factors coming together here um, and the breadth and depth of it are, are beyond the scope. But the reference points for me uh, are a few. One, one was the earthquake in Haiti um, in 2011, 2010, 2011, um, and the work we are doing in predominantly Haitian communities. And as that unfolded um, and it was being witnessed on television, there was an unfolding drama to that that was right before our eyes that that um, that had a depth to it that that stays with me and, and, and what we needed to do to respond there. Superstorm Sandy comes to mind as well as it really hit certain sectors and certain communities. And again, not the same scale, but there was certainly an economic impact, um, loss of home, displacement on a large scale, um, loss of life. There's there's some dramatic fallout there, and you know, in my experience, and this this work goes back to um, actually started in 1993, but you know, 9/11 um, shook the foundation for um, lots of folks, um, and and that that called on a particular kind of uh, response as well to be available. But, but but in most recent memory, Superstorm Sandy was really something that called upon a, a, an understanding of holding people who are also the caregivers uh, and, and seeing children uh, who were really, really um, scared and and really trying to understand how their parents were, were dealing with this and take, you know trying to maintain strength and, and their own resilience. I just think that there's a pull towards growth and and strength um, that that lives within children and, and children who face many many challenges um, have that and it's 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 a gift to be tapped into if you're a counselor. Thanks for tuning in. I'll be right back after a word from the sponsors of this episode. 
Hey everybody, it's Sean here to talk about one of my favorite sponsors. It's Helix. And I got a Helix sleep mattress earlier this year, and I can safely say it's the best mattress I've ever had. With everything going on in the world, the stress of the day can make it hard to get some good rest, but my Helix mattress has helped me rest during some truly hard times. Helix Sleep has a quiz that matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. You can order the mattress that you're matched with, add on sheets and pillows, and have it delivered right to your door. Just go to helixsleep.com empire. Take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress. And Helix is offering up to $200 off of all mattress orders, and they'll give you two free pillows just for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash empire. Check it out. It's the pathway to freedom that's leading to the North Star. Star, 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 Star. My name is Maria Elena Perez, and I am the associate editor at the North Star. Although I edit most of the articles on the website, part of my job is to still write articles that focus on the North Star mission, which is to give marginalized communities who are not often heard in mainstream media a voice. When the coronavirus pandemic hit, the editorial team and I wanted to make sure we covered how people of color were going to be impacted by COVID-19. We also wanted to highlight all of the people who were helping marginalized communities in need. This led to our weekly project called COVID-19 Heroes, where we interview regular people and organizations that are giving back to communities in such a difficult time. I was lucky enough to interview Shirley Rains, the founder of beauty nonprofit organization, Beauty to the Streets. Shirley and her team normally go to Skid Row in Los Angeles every Saturday to provide haircuts, wigs, manicures, and a meal to people living there. When the coronavirus hit, they knew it was their mission to do more. Despite social distancing orders, Shirley and her team continue to go out every Saturday to supply hand sanitizer and vitamin C packets to anyone living on Skid Row who needs it. It was such an honor to be able to share Shirley's story with our readers and to help her organization gain national attention. To be able to help edit and write stories that focus on topics like injustice, social justice, equal rights, and organizing is the best part of my job. If you're already a supporter of the North Star, thank you for allowing me to help publish and write amazing stories like Shirley's every day. If you're not a supporter already, please consider becoming a monthly member for $10, $15, or $25 a month to continue to allow my team and me to tell important, impactful, and well-reported stories. To become a member, head on over to thenorthstar.com. Now I am going to share a conversation I had with Sharon Content, the founder and president of an organization called Children of Promise. I have to say that although everyone on this episode is committed to the success of New York City's young people, what Sharon and her staff do is extraordinarily unique. They help children whose parents are in prison to live a full and healthy and functioning life. I was on the verge of tears listening to her explain the pivots that her organization has made in response to COVID-19. The selflessness of miscontent is evident and inspiring. In addition to her hands-on, fearless approach to COVID-19, 
She shares with me how she and the children she serve are witnessing the culture of Bed-Stuy change and why she is empowering the children of Brooklyn to get involved politically and to take back their borough. So let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. COVID-19, I mean, basically put the entire city on pause. Um, did it put Children of Promise on pause or, or are you still working with children in the midst of the pandemic? If anything, it actually has accelerated. We really went into virtual meetings, virtual mental health services. We did weekly check-ins. These are check-ins that are direct service counselors. They call their um, the young people once a week to check in to learn what's going on with remote learning. And that's how we really learned about the learning gap and how our children are very concerned and our, our caregivers and our, and our parents are very concerned about preparation for September and really just the, the disruption in the learning development as a result of remote learning. We really learned that so many of our young people didn't have the equipment. They didn't have the laptops and the the hotspots and the bandwidth and and really the Wi-Fi. We received uh, several laptops that were donated, and we dispersed at least fifty laptops to our to our families and to our to our children. Then we recognized food scarcity. We recognized that food scarcity was real in our communities. We've pivoted and we really changed so much of our services in that. We are now a full food distribution. We have a hot meal grab and go that we disperse every day. And we've been doing that since March. What makes it really unique at Children of Promise and for our population, our young people all have an imprisoned parent. So our young people, the concerns are heightened. The stress level was heightened because they were not only concerned of their caregivers, their mothers and grandmothers that were taking care of them at home and worrying about how COVID was going to affect their family. They were also concerned about how COVID was affecting their imprisoned parent. Because as you know, just last week, the COVID um, pandemic increased. COVID cases increased 4% just last week. In, 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 in New York City prisons. You definitely have seen Bed-Stuy change in the last five, six oh. years. Oh, we've been in Bed-Stuy for 10 years. I've seen it absolutely change. There are a lot of transplants in Bed-Stuy right now yeah. who are afraid of Black children. And that is the truth. Mm-hmm. Especially poor Black children. They see them on the train. They, you can tell they're scared. And they all live in one you know spot or in a cluster you know of apartment buildings. Um, because to be quite frank, 10 years ago, they wouldn't be in Bed-Stuy. They would be too shook right. to get off of the train. I say that all the time. <laughs> how, does your or- how does your organization navigate that? Uh, surely the children have to see that. Surely the children have to know. Kids are not stupid. Like, surely they have to, to see that their neighborhood is changing. Uh, do you have any conversations surrounding the the kind of new landscape that Bed-Stuy is becoming? Our children do recognize it. They're very aware of what's going on and feeling as if they're losing their footing and control of their community. So one thing that we've recognized, especially with our teen population through our social justice curriculum, is that they do have political power. They do have a voice in what goes on in their community. 
So while they may see these things, they don't have to see these changes and just walk past it and not have any say and not have any control at all. So what we're really trying to allow our young people is to find their voice and then use it in the way that they just they feel most relevant. You know, if they feel in their community, you know what, I don't want another coffee shop. I'd like to have a business that speaks more to my needs Then you need to express that. And we really have started to do it much more as a result of police brutality and really explaining to them about systemic racism and really what that means. So we've really infused a curriculum around social justice on a level that we really heightened and really became much more aggressive in, in, in how we wanted our young people to, to really find their political power. To close the show, you'll hear me in conversation with Kevin Irvin, who was the executive director of Change for Kids. Kevin is from the Red Hook Projects in Brooklyn, who was fortunate enough to go to one of the most prestigious private schools in the country before coming back to his community to teach the youth how to grow and thrive despite the odds. Kevin and I talk about everything from how non-Black people are expecting the poorest kids in the city to continue entertaining them during the pandemic, to the future of funding in public schools, and how fear keeps a lot of privileged black and brown people from committing to mentoring our youth. How are we as a city going to manage not being able to continue some of the public work if the fallout is going to be as bad as expected, the financial fallout, a lot of public programs are getting cut. How do you expect to kind of manage that in the fallout of the coronavirus? Definitely. Uh, it's, it's actually funny and ironic that you asked that question because uh, about a month from now, on July 15th, my organization is hosting a conference entitled Reimagining Youth Development to have this discussion about what do we look like in a transformed world when, you know, budgets are cut, uh, where racial reckoning is, is being more heightened, and how do we fully be not just responsive but responsible uh, to the young people and the communities that we serve. When we remove funding from schools, from nonprofits, from youth development programs, we force young people uh, to be left to their own devices. So what does that end up with? We look at New York City some 15, 20 years ago um, and, and before that, and you see huge amounts of youth crime and youth violence. Uh, and we will only inevitably revert back to that. So that, that's the first step is for us to have an honest conversation, an honest look at uh, everyone that's around the table and bring folks who haven't been at the table yet, right? Uh, there are tons of very large foundations and very large nonprofits that often are always invited to the table to speak. But some of them don't have any staff who are on the front lines, who are actually working with children every day, right? There are tons of administrators in the Department of Education who are at the table to speak, but never communicate with teachers who are in the classroom every day. So they, they're making decisions for people and not with people. So in that sense, let me ask you this. So the children of New York City in the worst, poorest neighborhoods, they honestly seem to be responsible for giving the city most of its culture and its hipness. But it's those same children who are the main targets for biased policing and who are the main targets for environmental racism and unequal opportunities when it comes to education and food. So can you talk about the the 
impact of COVID-19 adding to that pressure of living in an unbalanced society? My mother used to say that uh, necessity is the mother of invention. So out of the lack of, our communities are constantly inventing and creating what you refer to as the hipness. So creating the culture that is New York City and then uh, being held sort of hostage to continue to create that culture um, in pandemic times. So I, I think the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic has forced uh, a highlight on the disparity uh, in our communities, the discrepancy in what we believe was actually being provided, and has also heightened the uh, desire for folks outside of the communities to have more culture from there, right? Um, people have have shared constantly uh, across the pandemic how great and wonderful and amazing it would be to have, you know, sports continue to, to have happen, right? How many athletes, uh, famous athletes, started out in our communities and are the kids from our communities, right? So we want them to entertain us. People say, oh, it'd be great if this one sang or if that one sang or if this one came out with a song. How many uh, of these talents were were nurtured in the churches in our communities and, and in the community centers in our communities? Um, so the pressure is, is ever-present uh, and, and even heightened on our young people to deliver uh, both uh, on their talents and, and on their culture, um, but also to deliver uh, despite what uh, is occurring. We, we know how to press through. We know how to, how to uh, trudge on. We know how to struggle through. We, we know how to sing our way through. We know how to praise our way through. We know how to dribble and shoot and throw our way through. Now it's time for other people to stop putting us the pressure on us to be the song and dance of their their uh, sorrow and stop putting the pressure on us to be the sort of elevator waiting music as they rise to the top, but in fact, invite us on the elevator. In that sense, I have a very real question, a very raw question for you. There are a lot of Black people, there are a lot of brown people with a lot of privilege in Brooklyn and in the Bronx. And I'm wondering, and I could be wrong, I, someone with your expertise could speak better to this. But are, are, are the non-white, the, the black and the brown people with privilege who aren't necessarily gentrifying neighborhoods, but because they do maybe pay a certain level of rent, a certain amount of rent in, a, in an under, what was traditionally an underserved neighborhood, they kind of are gentrifiers in that sense. They're just black, right? I've noticed that those people maybe are afraid of the of the the poor youth of New York City and my question is how can black and brown people with privilege show up for New York City's underserved youth i think fear um, at its foundation comes from a lack of understanding People of color who may have more privilege, may have more access in our uh, city, have to first determine in themselves that they are going to experience um, or re-experience if they, if they came from these communities, the communities of color that are doing without right now. And, and then I think you'll break down the barriers of fear uh, for, for people of color who may have more privilege. Uh, so I invite anyone who, who listens to this who is a black or brown person of privilege um, and or access 
to contact organizations like Change for Kids or, or uh, uh, FIPS or, uh, you know, Opening Act or, or, you know, the nonprofits in New York City that work deeply in our communities and say, hey, can I come visit? But it's something else to hear something from the voice of a young person who has this lived experience and who still has hope, right? Who still has hope despite what's going on in the world. I asked Kevin if he and his staff had still been working since the pandemic. Not only are they still teaching, they are going above and beyond to ensure no child of theirs gets left behind. Because students in New York City and our communities didn't have computers, they didn't have laptops, they didn't have iPads. Um, so for a couple of weeks, as they were still trying to get iPads and, and laptops out, uh, sometimes, you know, teachers had to um, log on and then show the stuff to kids at their homes. We had staff out handing out laptops and, and iPads at, at our partner schools um, and such. But eventually, we really start to bring in uh, students in our communities. So we haven't stopped. You know, uh, school ended today and we started up, you know, within six days. Uh, as soon as school, the DOE transferred over to digital, we had a digital system to give enrichment activities to young people. I mean, that's brilliant, right? However, I'm wondering, I'm wondering, like, how you're dealing with this emotionally. Definitely. It's one thing to maybe assume from working with a working with a child what's going on at the home but it's another thing when you're kind of in the home digitally and maybe you can see uh housing insecurities and maybe you can see food insecurities yeah. or anxieties and what's going on in the home you can see it now so i'm wondering how you're dealing with that emotionally you know when when i think about that uh, my, my answers to that question i i think about my mother um, i might get emotional here but I think about my mother. My mother was, was really on the front lines of, of uh, HIV and AIDS before it even had a name. And, and I remember watching my mother come home when I was a kid. And she'd go in her room and she'd close the door. And I could hear my mother weeping. And eventually she'd come out and I'd say, Ma, you okay? What's, what's going on? And she'd share with me that, that uh, a client of hers may have passed away that day. And every day I, I thought to myself, okay, this is the last day. This is it. You know, she's going to go do something else. She, she's going to be a nurse or, or she's going to go back to school and get a doctorate and become a medical doctor and maybe work in the emergency room. But she stayed on the front line. You know, she would come home and be angry that they were arguing about what they would call HIV or AIDS uh, when people were dying. She stayed on the front line when people were refusing people housing, when people were refusing people benefits. Um, when she had to take clients to court and take them to housing places, when she had to put her name down on people's uh, leases because they couldn't have a place to stay. She stayed on the front lines. And it, it inspired me that she got up every day and did it again. And I found myself in that predicament uh, during the pandemic where for years I've worked with young people closely with the communities. I was running into project buildings when you know my students were about to get jumped. I was running into... Uh, people's homes when there was domestic violence situations and calling the cops to help out kids and, and mothers and things of that nature. I was, I was uh, you know, doing food drives with, with my folks, uh, with my staff, you know, in the Bronx and in Brooklyn for years. But to see our students log on day after day and sometimes parents coming to my staff and breaking down and saying, I just don't know what to do. I, I, I've, I'm struggling with food. I'm struggling with, with finances. I don't have a job right now. And on top of that, they want my baby to sign on every day 
for eight hours a day and stare at this screen. And the screen is actually my screen because it's my phone and I'm trying to apply for jobs. Uh, at some point in, in that, I, I felt helpless, if, if I can be honest. I, I felt like uh, I, I couldn't help everyone. But then I would wake up the next day with the same spirit of my mother and say, this is why I'm doing this. As much as I was emotionally overwhelmed and emotionally strung during this time, I knew I had to keep helping. And that's why Change for Kids continues to press on. That's why we've changed our entire staffing structure for the fall when students get back in school to put more bodies on the ground because we know students are going to need more supports. One thing that our organization is doing that I'd love to see widespread if I could uh, predict a hopeful future is that there would be more social supports in our schools. Um, in our communities, there were already inefficient social supports that existed before COVID-19, before there was a racial reckoning, before the death of our people was uh, highlighted on television and, and through social media. Before that, our children still needed someone to talk to, still needed counseling, still needed therapy. Um, and if we don't address that uh, beyond this, uh, after COVID, then our children will never learn. If I'm traumatized by the last six to eight months of my life uh, being outside of the school building, but having to have my skin complexion um, be the, the clarion call for people to say, I now matter. So I'm an eight-year-old, I'm a 10-year-old, and for 10 years I didn't believe I mattered, um, but now I think I matter because TV says so, and then that dies out when I get to school. Now I'm that much more traumatized. I don't have anyone to talk to about it because my principal and my teachers are so heavily focused on me catching up academically because I missed out on school. So we have to increase and augment the social supports that are there. Our staff, we're, we're putting social workers on the ground in school uh, come the fall. Kevin starts to give me scenes of an improved public school system post-COVID-19. Listen to him as he passionately paints a new public future. So if there were one thing that, that was greatly positive, uh, that, that's necessary uh, come post-pandemic, it's the, the increase of social supports. What does that look like? I'm so glad you asked. That looks like social workers during the daytime. That looks like counselors during the daytime. That looks like mentors that get to sit with you at lunch. That looks like after school that exists not just till 6 p.m. So that, that looks like after school extending to when your parents can pick you up. So are we feeding you dinner? Sure. Yes, we are. Um, are we having family dinner so that your mom doesn't have to cook dinner uh, when she gets home? Yeah. Great. So dinner for the whole family at six o'clock, right? Let's pay for this as a city. That looks like weekend programming. That looks like uh, stuff for you to do on Saturdays. That looks like family programming on the weekend. That looks like community programs on Sundays. That looks like summer programs. That looks like summer programs, right? Look at the numbers. The numbers don't lie. Uh, children get into trouble, get arrested, and children die in the summer when they don't have something to do, period. We have to mitigate the notion that counseling is is for the crazy or, or counseling is not something that black black and brown people need, that mental health is not important to us. Um, uh, we, we have to mitigate that notion and we have to put it at the forefront of our practice come the fall. I told Kevin the story of how I taught yoga in the Bronx in one of the most poorest neighborhoods in the entire borough. And I taught yoga and meditation to children who were about seven to maybe 11 years old. And I mean, they were so receptive to the practice and they showed such amazing 
talents and flexibility and such enthusiasm for the work. And when we got to the end of the practice where we do a pose called Shavasana, where you just lay on your back and you, you receive the benefits of the practice and you try to stay still and stay very silent. Usually this pose is, is difficult for a lot of children that I teach to stay into. It's hard for them to stay quiet. It's hard for them to stay still. However, these children were very receptive to the Shavasana. They needed it. They needed that time of stillness. They needed that time of silence and it showed. And this is what Kevin had to say about that story. And, and to your, your point about the yoga and the meditation, imagine for a second how many quiet moments kids in our communities really have. Very few. For years, for years, I was taking kids to, to camp uh, throughout the entire school year. And I remember vividly one night um, having kids from two different schools there. One of them was uh, Blood and one of them was a Crip. And they just happened to sleep in the same room. And they told me, you know, Kev, it's, it's not going to work out. Tonight is just going to be terrible. Um, you know, we're probably going to fight. And I remember before it was time for bed, uh, each of them individually coming to me with tears in his eyes saying, I'm scared. And I was like, well, what do you see? Are you scared about the other person in the room? What can I do? And they said, no, I'm not scared about that. It's too quiet out here. It's too quiet. It was like, I don't hear any cars. I don't hear any ambulances. I'm nervous. Right? And, they, and that was the common ground that brought them together. They spent a week at camp, and at the end of that, both of them dropped their flags and decided that they would be friends. But it started out with the commonality of we're both scared because we don't have quiet time in our lives. We got to expose our young people to, to these new opportunities so that they can overcome inequity. It's opportunities that we can give them, but the overcoming and dismantling of inequity, they'll be able to do. After hearing the selflessness, dedication, and resilience of these four guest speakers, I can't help but feel a bit ashamed. I'm going to confess something here that isn't easy to confess. During the pandemic, I've spent more time and more money searching for and purchasing creature comforts on Amazon.com, more time and money than I ever have in my life. I've been concerned about myself, staying at home, being away from the public, especially children who I had convinced myself are notorious carriers of germs. While there are people like Gina Jefferson who has been creating spaces for young people to express their fears of being broke and helpless during lockdown. I've been ordering groceries from an organic farm while there are people like Sharon Content who has spent her quarantine time driving from New Jersey to Bed-Stuy every single day to give hot meals to children and families. I'm embarrassed to admit that I have privilege and I am not showing up for the youth in my own community. However, that's about to change. I've already asked to be a part of a South Bronx mutual aid, and I've opened my schedule to volunteer to teach yoga and meditation virtually to a group of at-risk girls. I can do more, and I will. Mainly because I can't unsee the incredibly powerful ways that young people's lives are changed for the better when someone who looks like them shows up with genuine concern and empowers them to stay on a path of success and growth. I do want to challenge everyone listening to this show to show up for the underserved communities closest to where you live. Do whatever you can. Just make sure that you do it consistently and with love and with compassion.
I want to invite the listeners of Sick Empire to follow me on Instagram at Brandon Janice and send me a message with any organizations that help children in lower income neighborhoods experience different ways of life. I do read all of my messages and I do respond to them. So if you have anything to share on ways that we as a community can show up bigger and better for our future leaders, then I invite you to contact me and let me know what you know. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Sick Empire. This podcast is produced and presented by The North Star. The North Star is funded entirely by our members. Every episode of Sick Empire comes out one week early to members of The North Star. If you'd like to listen now, you can become a member at thenorthstar.com. That's thenorthstar.com. You can also support Sick Empire by going to Apple Podcast, subscribing to Sick Empire, and leaving us your best review. Tell us what you love about the podcast. On any other podcasting platform, please subscribe and follow us. Special thanks also goes to our guests and every staff member at the North Star. The available AKG 36 speaker sound system in the Cadillac Escalade provides 360 degree sound, not just here or here, but everywhere. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade never stop arriving.